0: Matthew chapter 4. Many of you will be wondering how we skipped so quickly from Ruth to Matthew in our uh, study through the scriptures and let me just uh, say that uh, we're taking a brief pause in July in that series and we'll be returning to it in August. But two weeks ago at this year's Southern Baptist Convention, messengers overwhelmingly voted to approve a motion that allowed our convention president to form a task force which will examine how we can make changes to our convention as a whole and better better encourage our churches individually to fulfill the Great Commission. You will remember, many of you, that the Great Commission is essentially the church's standing orders from Christ Himself. Before His ascension, Christ said to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christians in almost every age since Christ have seen this commission as a large guiding force for whatever they were seeking to do in their churches. God built His church and commissioned His people to make Disciples to proclaim the gospel and upon profession of faith in the gospel to be baptized in a public declaration of that faith and then to be taught the things of Christ. That is what a disciple is. One who hears the gospel and responds and is taught to live under the direction of Christ. The problem though is that in the church in the United States we have largely been failing to do this at least with the statistics in our own convention, since around 1970, we have been slowly dropping down in terms of the numbers of people that we are reaching for Christ, even though our efforts at global missions have been going up. And we're grateful for that. We have been failing here at home, even while telling our missionaries that we're sitting abroad to press on with the Great Commission. Therefore, we are thankful that the leadership of our convention And over 8,500 messengers saw the need for a great commission resurgence among our churches. And as we anticipate this resurgence of missionary, mission-minded, missional thinking in our church as a whole, we also want to think about it in our in our own lives individually. And over the next four weeks, we want to ask ourselves the question: What does it mean to live in such a way that we make disciples? What does it mean to live a great commission lifestyle? Now, the answer to that question is we're not going to be complete in four weeks. But I hope what I hope to do in these four weeks is, as it were, to touch on certain, uh, certain weak spots that not just me, but others perceive in our life together. Maybe not even weak in the sense of we're really bad at it, but weak in the sense that we're just mediocre in it. One of the things that we talked about this morning in Sunday School was that God abhors pride. When we get to the book of Revelation, it is also lukewarmness that Christ says He will vomit out of His mouth. I I do not want to be lukewarm in my love, in my fervency for Christ, and I don't want you to be that way either. And so for the next four weeks, what I hope we will do would be to look to the Word and to be encouraged and re-energized by God's Spirit to be thinking about these things so that in our community groups and in our Bible study and our prayer gatherings, we will be seriously thinking about how we are to live as Christ's disciples, taking seriously His command to go and make more disciples. In fact, in very broad ways, your elders have been and will continue to be thinking about this to the point that you will, in the months to come, likely see change in the way we do ministry here and the way we emphasize our budget for next year. Because you need to understand that being Christ's disciples and following his command, his great commission to make disciples, is not just some abstract idea. It's not just something floating out there in the ether, out in the air somewhere where we're saying, oh, yeah, we're supposed to be going and making disciples. No, it needs to impact the way we live our lives. The Great Commission must impact the way that we think, the way that we love, the way that we live. In every way, our lives should be radically changed by it because we claim to be Christ's disciples. The one who has authority over all things has said, this is what you are to be doing. And so we need to be thinking about how to better bring our lives in line to that. And this morning, I want us to see that ultimately living out the Great Commission, living in such a way that we make disciples together as God's church begins when we follow Christ. It begins when we follow Christ. And so look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and following. Actually, let me back up. Let's start at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. We want to see three things that are involved, three things that are a part of following Christ. First, we need to understand that Christ calls disciples. Christ calls disciples. If we were to read John's gospel, it would be clear to us that prior to this this event here in Matthew chapter 4, that some of These disciples have in fact seen Jesus before. They know something about Him. They were actually John's disciples. And some of them were there when John looked to Christ and said, Behold there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet here Jesus is coming and issuing a very specific call on the lives of these men. He is calling them to follow Him. As His disciples. Just as we are called to go and make disciples, Jesus sets the template for us in that He Himself went and made disciples. We need to spend some time here thinking about who these men were because I fear it's far too easy for us to think serious discipleship is only for serious people. Seriously, falling after Christ is only for those important people in the church, only for those really spiritual people. But look at who Jesus calls. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he meets this pair of brothers doing the work of fishermen. Notice first, where did he meet them? Well, the Sea of Galilee, if you don't know, is, ironically enough, in Galilee. Okay? So what's Galilee? Well, first of all, understand it's not Jerusalem. It's not the center of Jewish piety and religion in the first century. It's not there. It's not in the court of Herod. It's not in the schools of the rabbis and the chief priests, the Pharisees and the scribes. He went out to Galilee. Galilee was considered, if you don't know, more or less the hick region of first century Palestine. It was rural. It was blue collar. And nobody expected anything to come out of Galilee except the fish that these men are pulling out of the sea. In other words, Jesus called these men out of the world's in the world's view, total obscurity. Secondly, notice these men, what they did for a living. They were fishermen. They're not educated men. Now that doesn't mean they weren't unintelligent. Some people will, some critical scholars especially, will try and portray the disciples as illiterate and so say, there's no way they could have wrote the letters that we have in the New Testament. But Go, saying they're illiterate is going too far. To be uneducated simply means they were not in the process of receiving, as it were, a college or higher level graduate degree in education in the courts of the Pharisees. They were not going off beyond the normal reading, writing, arithmetic that would have been taught in the homes and in Hebrew uh, collected schools. They're not going on for the religious education, as it were. And so in that regard, they're not particularly learned men in the eyes of the world. So as fishermen... We also know they were not wealthy men. They weren't necessarily poor, but they weren't wealthy either. They were in a vocation that enabled them to feed their families and sustain themselves, but they worked week to week dependent upon what God would bless them coming up out of their nets. And Jesus says, it's these kind of men that I want to be my disciples. Simple men of Galilee, men who did not know fame or prominence, who had no great reputation which preceded them they say, why you spend all that time telling us about the disciples? My point I want you to understand is this. God doesn't take great people to be his disciples. God takes people, plain people, ordinary people like you and like me, and he makes them great in his kingdom as his disciples. It's unfortunate today as in years past, some will want to say you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. That somehow there's this two-stage process of saying, well, I, I come to faith in Christ, I want the fire insurance of salvation, but I don't want the disciple stuff. I don't want to have to live a life in the Word, following Christ. I, I, I don't, want to have to, don't want to have to do all that stuff. And we're tempted to, to, even if we would not go that far, to still think of ourselves somehow as spiritual lightweights as opposed to the spiritual heavyweights. Perhaps the, the 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 pastor, although I'm not quite sure how how much of a spiritual heavyweight your pastor is, but uh, there are other people out there, famous people on television, have much larger churches, or Billy Graham or whoever it is. You think, well, those guys, those are really disciples, but I'm not in that I'm not in that category. There's no way that I could ever be used for building the larger kingdom of God. But you have to understand that Jesus expects everyone to be his disciple. Jesus did not not pick someone of prominence and say, come, you guys have potential. You guys are going to be great in the kingdom. I can really do something with you. No, he takes people that, that are nothing in the eyes of the world. He takes people that are nothing in the eyes of the kingdom. And he says, you come with me and you be my disciples and I will make you great in the kingdom of God. Understand, friends and loved ones, there is no B team in the church There is no second strength. There is no junior varsity. There is one people of God called through the gospel of Christ. One people saved from their sins to follow after Jesus as his disciples. And so as Dr. Charles Ware says, and the youth are very familiar with, God doesn't have fans. We're all players, so get in the game. We are all called to be his disciples. Now if we understand that, if we understand that all who claim the name of Christ, all who have professed faith in Him are called to be disciples, the next question we have to ask is, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does a disciple look like? What does it mean then to follow Jesus? Well, ultimately that's the answer, isn't it? Being a disciple means following Him. And So the second thing we need to see this morning is that Christ calls disciples to follow Him. Christ calls disciples, and then now secondly, Christ calls disciples to follow him. At its core, Christian discipleship is all about following Christ. Look again at what Matthew says. While while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Notice the response of the disciples. They didn't just follow Jesus in theory. They didn't just say, you know, I will to sign my name on a card and I'll get back to you later on the details. They literally drop the nets they're, they're mending, they're fixing from the night's catch. They walk away from their boat and they proceed to follow Jesus wherever it is that he's going. They literally went wherever he went. They left behind their jobs, their family, the security of their normal lives. They followed Jesus with an amazing amount of trust. What we see here, both in the disciples' response as well as later in Jesus' teaching, uh, following Jesus involves at least three things. First of all, following Jesus, following Christ, means following His Lordship. Following Christ's Lordship. When these men leave their jobs and their families, what are they saying? What are they saying about their lives? What they're saying is this, those things are not authority in my life anymore. My job is not the driving force in my life anymore. My family is not the driving force in my life anymore. I have to say that, you know, in years past, there was this idea that we, that particularly in ministry, that we sacrifice our families on the altar of service to God. And and it was wrong. But like many things, the pendulum didn't go back to the middle. It swung back to the other side where now family becomes the excuse for all kinds of non-involvement and non-willingness to go out and, and, and serve as Christ. And so now they've become from being, neg- they went from being neglected to now being an idol that controls our life. And the disciples said, no, not even family is going to be the authority in our lives anymore. Though it was not done perfectly, though it was not done without misunderstanding, these men followed Jesus, submitting to His Lordship over their lives. They're saying, He alone is now the authority over us. And frankly, this is a a tough pill for us to swallow. It it requires the 12-ounce glass of water, not the Dixie cup. Because, Because we live in a culture that hates authority. As a society, we value freedom above all else. Just think about, think about the heroes of our culture. Who, who cheered when you saw Braveheart? William Wallace, right? He is the hero. George Washington, leading the revolutionaries of our country. Those men are our heroes. Why? Because of, regardless of whether they were right or wrong, and who they were or what they did, we love them because they rebelled against authority, and they brought freedom from authority to people. And so that, that anti-authoritarianism is not a streak is not just a vague thing where we kind of raise up and root for the underdog. No, it permeates our culture and our thinking to the degree that even in the minutia of life, we hate being told what to do. We despise authority, and oftentimes we hate leaders. We think we know what's best for our lives, and we easily resent it when someone else tries to come in and tell us you could be doing better. I'll never forget talking with, with one guy and he was, he was very willing to hear me teach about right doctrine. He was very willing to hear me unfold the scriptures to him, explain what Matthew meant, what Ephesians meant, what Genesis meant. He was very willing to hear me denounce societal sins like abortion and homosexuality. But the minute I got in his face just a little bit in love and said, I think you could be doing a better job with your family, brother, he got defensive to the nth degree and said, that's my family, not yours. Don't you tell me what to do with them. I'm sorry, I thought I was, I thought I was one coming at you with the word of God and God was seeking to tell you what to do with your family. No, he didn't want to have anything to do with that. No authority in our lives. And yet... Part of the call in following Christ, in fact, I would say essential to the call of following Christ in our life is the confession, Jesus is Lord. That confession is what got our brothers and sisters killed in the first century. Caesar is not Lord. The the, the Jewish authorities are not Lord of our life. Christ is Lord. Therefore, die for your faith, Christian. And yet, what do we do today? Do we live as if Jesus is the Lord of our lives or do we try to be the Lord of our lives? The lordship of Christ is a mark of whether or not we are his disciples and we're living that way. In John 10, Jesus calls his disciples sheep. He calls himself the shepherd of his sheep. And he is very clear in verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Following Christ is about submitting to his lordship. And allowing him to be the great leader of our lives, following him, trusting him, obeying him. But it's not just about following his lordship, it's also about following his teaching. Part of what would have been so astonishing about Jesus is the way he acquired his disciples. You see, in his day, it was the students who sought out the teacher. You see, a great rabbi would get, and it frankly, it works like this today, doesn't it? I mean, particularly in uh, certain fields of education, you have one professor who is known as like the guy. And so students will specifically choose to go to that school so they can study with that particular professor, that particular instructor. Sometimes it even happens in, in church life. This guy is a great minister. He's got a large church, and you've got the option of relocating to a different job. And we say, we're going to go hear that guy. You seek out the teacher that you like. And it was the same thing in Jesus' day with the rabbis. You would have guys that would become known for their ability to teach and to handle God's word. So for instance, Gamaliel, whom Paul stayed under, was was held up as this great rabbi. And people would go and say, can I be your disciple? Will you disciple me? Will you teach me? Will you show me how to think and live like you do? But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, in fact, did not not to stand back and let people come to him. He went out searching and seeking them. He went and called to them. Now, at the very least, implicit in him doing this is the thought that he is letting his disciples know, what I have to teach you is not like anything else you've heard from any other rabbi. I'm not like the other teachers. And what you're going to hear from my lips is not going to sound like anything that they've said either. Last week, Pastor Richard reminded us of this. Jesus taught, and the people asked, where is he getting these things? From, From where does he get his authority? For he teaches as one having authority, the people would say. By getting up and following Jesus, the disciples are agreeing to follow his teaching. And when you read the rest of the Gospels, you see a lot of what they do is listening to Jesus' teaching. You see, they understood the importance of that. In fact, in John 6, passage that we mentioned earlier, people are following Jesus more for the miracles than for him. He's just fed uh, thousands of people, and they're looking for another free meal. And Jesus knows it. He knows their hearts. And so he basically says, we need to thin the crowd. There, there's, there's too many people. And you can, you know, I just <laughs> just the other day I heard that one, one, one pastor saying, you can imagine if the disciples were anything like us, they were saying, Jesus, this is not... This is not a strategy for church growth. I want you to know this. He turns around and says, if you want to have something to do with me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people say, well, that's weird, man. I'm out of here. And the disciples are saying, oh, man, the offerings are up. What are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? Well, i tell you what he's doing. He's teaching in a way like one who has authority, one who has power, one who stands out different from all the other rabbis. Because right after this, we are told in John 6, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, and you wonder if that's all that's left. From hundreds to 12. But he looks at them and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, I wonder where else we are going. Where else are we seeking to find the words of life? Even the best Christian books are just explaining what Jesus has said to His church in the Bible. They may explain it well. They may explain it accurately. But insofar as they deviate from that, it will prove to be a waste of our time. To the degree that we are looking for teaching beyond the Scriptures, beyond the Word of Christ. It will be like trying to live on cotton candy when what we really need is a steak. The food that our souls need can only be found in Christ. As Jesus' disciples, as those who claim the name of Christ, calling ourselves Christians, we must follow the teachings of Christ. Finally, if we are to live as Christ's disciples, those whom He has called, we must follow Christ's example. We must follow Christ's example. Ultimately, Christian discipleship is not about a list of rules. Jesus didn't start a seminary or an annual leadership conference. And I, go, I went to one and I go to the other. So I'm not saying those things are wrong, but all I'm saying is they're not primary. You go to the places where the church is exploding in growth like China and Korea, guess what? Don't have a lot of seminaries. Don't have a lot of annual church leadership conferences. Those things can be good, but they are not primary. Primary to our walk as disciples is a living, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, when I say it's not about rules, it doesn't mean we we throw off the teaching, or else I just wasted five minutes or whatever it was my time telling you to follow the teachings of Christ. But you understand the right relationship of the teachings of Christ to us as disciples. We read things like the Sermon on the Mount. We read all of the scriptures which point to Christ, not as saying, I do this in order to become a disciple. I follow these rules, and then I'll be a disciple of Jesus. No, we say, because I am a disciple, now I obey these rules. You see the difference? One earns you salvation. One is the fruit of salvation. You see, as God's people, as those saved by God's grace, we read the scriptures, as it were, as love letters from our Savior. Christ is said to be in Ephesians, the bride of the church. And so... What bride does not want to make herself ready for the appearing of her husband down the aisle? I hope that when I stood at the front of the church with my groomsman behind me and the minister to my right and I was at a 45 degree angle as I was told to do and I had my hands folded and those doors opened and Melinda came down for the first time radiant white. I hope the smile on her face was not. Everybody's thinking of me. I hope it was. Here I am, John. I'm ready for you. Because I know that was the only thought in my mind. The culmination of three years of courtship was about to find its fullest expression. And it's not without reason then that the Bible says we as the church are the bride of Christ. We are to be making ourselves ready. We say, Christ, how are we to be ready for you and your coming? And he says, take up my word and read, follow my teaching. And what do we say? Great, do it. Because we want to we be, we want to earn our bride. No, 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 we're already the bride of Christ. We're already believers. We do it out of a loving response to God. So we must make sure that we get the emphasis in the right way. No one is saved by keeping the word. No one is saved by following rules. They're saved because two thousand years ago Christ took on flesh, though He was equal with God in every way. He gave up those privileges. He gave up that glory and covered himself. He united full humanity to his full divinity and willingly lived a life that was leading to one and one thing only, the cross, where he gave up his life for his people. He gave his innocent blood for the blood of sinners. And Jesus says that those who would come after him are to follow his example and take up their cross and follow after Christ what does that mean does that mean that we somehow propitiate we somehow atone for the sins of other people no not at all he was the perfect final sacrifice people only come to God through him nevertheless both in his atoning work he also set an example for us to follow whereby just like he said father not my will but yours be done now when we go to the scriptures and we find ourselves in hard places and we find ourselves with opportunities to live a life of sacrifice for the benefit of the gospel, for the benefit of the glory of Christ being made known, we say, like our Savior and our example, Father, not my will be done, but yours. Part of following Christ as disciples is following him even to the point of the cross. And now you understand why Billy Graham used to always say, salvation is free, but discipleship costs us everything we have. What do the disciples give up? Everything. And they walked away from everything. Now God in His grace um, brought them back to see their families several times. But they were saying, we're going to follow your example wherever it leads. We yield everything to His Lordship, but ultimately it is worth it because Christ says whatever is given up for Him in this life will be returned to us a hundredfold in the life to come. So Paul can say, I do not count the short sufferings of this life as comparable to the weight of glory that is to come i mean he doesn't even just say they balance out in the books suffering now glory later with god that's that that's good it makes sense no he says they don't compare they are a light and momentary affliction and this is a man that was nearly beaten or whipped to death several times and he says, it means nothing because I am a disciple of Christ. Therefore, I will follow Christ's example. This is why Jim Elliott, the missionary to Ecuador, right before he died, could write in his journal, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The last thing that we want to see involved in living as disciples of Christ, people called to follow Him is this. Christ calls disciples, Christ calls disciples to follow Him, and Christ calls disciples to follow Him in fulfilling the Great Commission. Dr. Greg Beal is a seminary professor who has recently put a book called We Become What We Worship. It's a study on idolatry in the Bible. And what Beal finds is that people often become like what they worship that's the biblical teaching so for instance he says you'll read in the old testament prophets where god is denouncing his people as deaf dumb and blind why why are they deaf dumb and blind to spiritual things because they worship idols who are deaf dumb and blind they are blocks of wood or rocks and they've been devoting themselves to them and god says you have become like them you've become totally blind to the spiritual realities of life and so there is this principle that he traces through all the Bible. Whatever you worship, that is what you become like. That is what you're transformed into. Now, even if we are not actively bowing down, giving ourselves over to, in, our, in, in our heart worship to, to these things, we still see, I think, uh, in very common ways, uh, this principle being worked out in everyday life. And let me give you an example. One of the things, in addition to being fed by the sermon preparation uh, and, and different lessons and everything else, I, I get fed by listening to other preachers. And uh, there, was, there was one time, that's one of the reasons why I love the internet, because basically everybody gives away all their sermons for free, and so you can pretty much you know, listen to whoever you want, and it's good, all except for the fact that sometimes there's people on there that you shouldn't be listening to, and it's hard to discern sometimes wh- which is which. Nevertheless, I digress. There was one particular guy and I, and I uh, heard him before and uh, knew that uh, he, was a, he was a great man of God, a great preacher, and he was preaching on a specific topic that I was going to be dealing with. And so I downloaded his four-sermon series and was listening to that in preparation for my sermon uh, uh, preaching on the topic. And it was great. I mean, I just, I, I was well fed by what he said. He was a model of taking the text and unfolding and explaining it. So I said, I want to download more to this guy. And so I began to, I downloaded something like, I don't know, 20 sermons, like three different series. And I began listening to, the, put them on a CD and was listening to it in the car whenever I was driving around. And then it was probably about four weeks into it that I, I remember very distinctly standing in the pulpit, making a point and a phrase came in my mouth and I sounded just like that preacher I've been listening to. And, and I literally caught myself and thought, oh, I don't want to do that. I mean, he's, I mean, he's a good preacher, but he's not me. And I had spent so much time listening to this guy that unwittingly, I was picking up his mannerisms, his, his tonal patterns, everything. And I said, we're done listening to him for a while. Let's move on to somebody else. And what, what was happening? I admired the guy. He was good. He was, good. And so I began to become like him because I was spending so much time with him. The more time I spent listening to him, the more I began to be like him, even in small ways. Now, with that in mind, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, who were casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen, Jesus said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Notice first that following Christ, being his disciple, is intimately bound up with living out the Great Commission. If you are a disciple of Christ, you will be fishing for men. You will be seeking to make disciples. You will be seeking to live out the Great Commission. Jesus told these fishermen, you follow me and you're not going to catch fish anymore. Instead, you're going to catch men. That is what my disciples do. But notice how Jesus says it will happen. He doesn't say, follow me and let's start fishing for men. He doesn't say, follow me and you're going you're to figure out how to be fishers of men. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Friends, this is the natural result of following Christ. You will be transformed. You will turn into that which you worship, that which you follow after, him who you spend time with and love dearly, a fisher of men we become like the one we worship. Christ was a fisher of men. He was the greatest missionary who ever lived. And to the degree that we follow him as his disciples, spending time listening to him and his word and speaking to him in prayer, living under his lordship, then we will become like him. We will be transformed from the inside out into fishers of men. Understanding this is going to help us in at least two ways. First, there are some of you out there who are scared to death to share the gospel with somebody. I mean, you find yourself in an opportunity to share Christ and you just shut down and you seize up and you think I should be saying something and I don't know what it is and so I'm walking away. That's exactly what you do, right? I mean, who here has done that before? You don't have to raise your hands. But just mentally, mentally check. I've done it before. You, you, you find yourself in something that totally takes you off guard and you're thinking I should, I should say something and, you, and you're, you're done. You just walk away thinking, oh, what, what a missed opportunity. And that has led you to believe evangelism is not my spiritual gift. That's left to other people, and so we'll let them do that. I'll be involved in something else. And we think, great commission work is not for us. Friends, it doesn't work that way. Jesus has said, follow me, discipleship, great commission, fisher of men. All of these things flow into one another. There's no separating them out. So what's the solution? What's the solution for being what Jesus calls you to be? It's very simple, isn't it? Spend time with Jesus. Spend time time with Jesus. The more you worship him, the more you will become like him. The more you hear his voice, the more you call out to him, the more you commune with him through the spirit and the word, you will become like him. He will transform you into being a fisher of men. But secondly, there are some of you out there and you just really don't care about the great commission. If someone asked you, you would say, yeah, people need to hear the gospel to be saved. But it's not even like you want to do it and find yourself paralyzed with fear. You just don't care. It is like priority zero for you. Just not on the table at all. You have no interest in being involved in missions work of any kind, whether local or global. You may throw a dollar or two into Annie Armstrong or um, Lottie Moon, but you never give sacrificially. You never pick up a track on the way out and plan to give it to anybody. You just don't have the Great Commission on your radar at all. You are content to live as a self-centered Christian partaking of the church's ministry but never investing in it by going outside the walls of the church and seeking to bring the gospel to the nations. Understand again, that's not what Jesus' disciples look like. That's not what they look like. So if you claim to be a disciple but don't care about spreading the gospel, there's something wrong. Either you don't really know who Christ is or you're not really worshiping him as you should. And the solution is the same. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Learn about him from God's word. Spend time with him in prayer. Seek with all your heart to follow after Christ. And God will transform your heart from being one who cares nothing about the Great Commission to one who is zealously passionate about the Great Commission. The place where my dad works is located in a community that is very diverse internationally. A lot of immigrants settle there. As a the result, his workplace is very diverse with people from many nations and many religions that, um, that work alongside him. Nevertheless, there is a group of Christians um, that meet uh, on a regular basis to pray before work begins. And recently, dad was telling me that uh, one of the workers in the, in the company died. And so they organized a special prayer meeting for the family. And it was just said, we're going to have a time of prayer for the family. And it was not said this is a Christian thing, although it was led by Christians. And so you had different people from many religions showing up. In particular, there was lots of uh, Muslim immigrants that, that came to this thing. And the man who was responsible for leading it is himself an immigrant. He's a Christian from Africa. And he got up and dad said, here's what he said. I know that there are many religions represented here. My religion is Jesus. Let's pray. That was it. I thought, how can we put it any better than that? My religion is Jesus. Real, true religion is rooted in a right relationship with God through Christ. The question is is that true for us? And if it's not true for us, we'll never fulfill the Great Commission. If we are to have any hope of going and making disciples, then we need to see all of our life as centering around following Christ. We need to be able to say, authentically, realistically, my religion is Jesus. And we need to do this immediately. Isn't that what we see? Isn't that great? I mean, it's almost startling. You're almost thinking, well, they're leaving something out. What are they not telling us? But Jesus comes up. And even with the veiled glory of his incarnation, he looks to these men and he says, follow me. Immediately they get up and they leave their nets and they follow Christ. Some of you are here this morning, you've never followed Christ. Some of you are here and you've never trusted him for salvation. And let me just say that today can be the day of your salvation. Christ says that all who would go to him, all who are weary, And heavy laden, trying to earn their own salvation, trying to earn a right place with God, you can find rest in Him because He has already paid the penalty for sin. And so you trust in Him. You trust in that sacrifice. And then there's others of us who have made that claim. We claim to be Christians. In fact, I think many of us are Christians, but we're still sitting on the beach. Jesus said, follow me. And the other brothers have got up and left. And you said, yeah, I'm coming. And you get up and you think, I wonder if I should pack a lunch. I wonder if I need to go ask my wife if I need to do this. Um, I don't know. It looks like it's going to rain. Maybe i are going to get my coat. And you're just kind of hanging out at the beach, and you're not following. The other guys are off making disciples. They're off fishing for men, and through them, God is drawing the net. He is bringing people in through faith in Christ. And you're just sitting there on the beach, not sure what to do because you're worried about too many other things. And for you, my friends... Follow the example of the disciples who did not perfectly understand Christ. They did not perfectly understand the call in their lives. Yet they knew enough when they saw the Lord of all things to follow him when he said, follow. And I hope that like me, and like so many in this church, we will look back and we will see how we have not been as faithful as we could have been to the Great Commission in our lives. Both corporately as a church, as individuals. We will say, no more. Today is the demarcation line where I am now a great commission Christian. I will follow Christ so that I might be a part of making disciples for his glory. Let's pray.